Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are going to try to bite off two more chapters in Ezekiel and a big chunk of Jeremiah. So that's a lot of reading for one night. Let's talk just a little bit about approaches to studying the Bible and preaching the Bible. Because as we were in Ohio this week and coming home, Micah and I had a good conversation, a good discussion about different approaches to exegeting the Word of God. Sometimes it is appropriate, like what we've been doing in James and what we've done when we're digging into Ephesians 1 or when we're really looking deeply into Romans 8, sometimes words really, really matter and word definitions matter and what does the Greek say and how is this parsed out and what figure of speech is this and sometimes that's very, very important in order to understand what God is getting at and what the original authors were getting at. Sometimes, however, it's the big context, it's the big story In Ezekiel's case, it's the big prophecies that are the thing that is being advanced. And parsing away at particular words isn't going to help you to understand what's being said as much as the big picture is. I think the phrase that we used in the car was, sometimes you can concentrate on the needle so much that you miss the haystack. And so, as we're continuing to look at Ezekiel, we are going to be taking big chunks of it like that, because if we just did a couple of verses like we've been doing in the book of James, then we'd never get through Ezekiel. It would take us forever to reach the end of the book. But if we did that, I don't think it would help you to understand what Ezekiel is getting at. In fact, most of the commentaries that I've looked at on chapter 10 and chapter 11 that we're going to look at tonight... Most of the commentaries are even fairly sparse because the commentators all kind of agree that Ezekiel's saying what he means to say and that it doesn't take a whole lot of digging into the verbiage and the phraseology. There's a couple little Hebraisms that we're going to have to dig into in order to understand them. But for the most part, Ezekiel is saying exactly what he wants to say. Now, the last couple of weeks, we have seen God saying that he's going to bring punishment on Israel, and then he delineates them as the northern and the southern tribe, and he holds Jerusalem and the southern tribe as more guilty than the northern tribe because they actually witnessed God taking the northern tribes and scattering them out of their land, and so Judah should have repented, but Judah didn't. And so now... Ezekiel is going to see an image of God leaving the temple and leaving Jerusalem and setting himself. The last place he sees him is on a mountain outside of the city and then rising up into heaven. Symbolic of the fact that the glory of God is going to leave the temple in Jerusalem, that the glory of God is going to leave Jerusalem as a city. And you would think once you'd seen that, once you've seen the glory of God departing 
which once again, this vision is going to be a, a vision of slaughter and a vision of bloodshed and a vision of just unending wrath from God. You would think at this point, especially with his glory leaving Israel, you would think, well, that's it for Israel. That's pretty much it. Judah's done. Israel's done. God's departed. The glory's gone. The judgment's here. That's it. But actually, when you look at the second half of chapter 11, almost inexplicably, suddenly Ezekiel sees visions of the restoration of Israel because Ezekiel speaks exactly the way all of the prophets of Israel continually speak. They all say, God is mad. God is going to judge you. God is going to punish you. God is going to scatter you. God's going to take you out of your land. God's going to bring your enemies down upon you. And he's going to cause you to be so hungry and so thirsty. And there's going to be no food. There's going to be no water. And then you're going to go into being slaves in an exile land. And you're going to lose your heritage. And you would think at that point that the people would say, well, then there's no hope. And that's the question that Ezekiel asks. Well, then is there no hope? Is there not a remnant? Is there nothing? And that causes God to turn and say, no, I'm going to take care of Israel. I've always taken care of it. In fact, I'm going to go get them in the places where I have scattered them. I know where they are. I'm going to go get them and I'm going to bring them back to this land. So yet again, you're going to see Ezekiel say exactly what all of the prophets of Israel always say continually. I've given up on trying to count the number of times in the Old Testament that prophets turn a positive note toward Israel. Israel has been punished. Israel has been scattered. And the visions now are going to become really brutal. And yet God's going to say, but for my sake, because I'm God, because I'm faithful, I'm not going to turn completely away from Israel. I'm going to punish them. I'm going to correct them. But I'm not going to give up on them completely. So sometimes folks contact me and say, where do you get this idea of a future for Israel? And then they throw words out like, you're a dispensationalist, and they think that means something that's going to slap me down or something. Where do you get this idea of a future for Israel? It's all the way through the Old Testament. All of the prophets speak with one voice, and that idea is carried over into the book of Romans, into 9, 10, and 11. There's continuity there. It's carried over into the book of Revelation. There's continuity there. And so God does not give up on Israel. God corrects Israel, but Israel still has multiple, multiple prophecies of a glorious future, of being returned to their land, of restoration, of David's greater son sitting on the throne, ruling over them, and the Gentile nations flowing to Jerusalem. But you couldn't tell it from the chapters we're going to read tonight. From the chapters we're going to look at tonight, God has departed, and God is even going to say to Ezekiel, the walls are going to rust and the walls are going to fall down in the next chapter that we'll look at next week. God even goes so far as to say, look, just go to your house, pack like an exile, bust a hole through the wall, because I'm going to take them like exiles through the broken walls of Jerusalem and take them into the the exile that I've planned for them. So all the imagery, all the prophecy is very, very harsh from God. And yet, God continues to say, 
unfaithful. So I think we can get a great deal out of that. As soon as we get that knowledge and understanding, we can say, okay, my life's going rough. And okay, things are happening and not everything is turning my way. But that doesn't change the faithfulness of God. That doesn't change the fact that God is who God is regardless of the circumstances. Many times here at GCA, I have said the best definition of faith I have ever heard is believing that God's word is more true than your circumstances. And God's word keeps saying over and over again, God is faithful regardless. He's faithful to his word. Once he says it, he's going to do it. And he says this over and over and over and over again. I would never be able to believe anything in the Bible if anybody could prove to me that God gave up on Israel. Because God keeps saying, I'm going to be faithful to Israel. And so we have to stand on God's word, count it as more true than our circumstances. And the circumstances for Israel right now are not good. Israel, the northern tribes, have been scattered ever since the Assyrian captivity. So there's 3,000 years of being out of their homeland and being among the Gentiles and being scattered and losing their heritage. And, and God knows where they are. God knows who they are. God's going to bring them back. And I can't bring myself to believe anything but that because that's exactly what the word keeps saying. So there's the introduction. In order to start chapter 10, and we're going to look at 10 and 11 tonight, hopefully, and a bit of Jeremiah, like I said, in order to start chapter 10, we have to back up a little bit into chapter 9, because chapter 10 is a continuation of the things we've already seen in chapter 9. And last week, we just had to kind of stop because we were out of time. Last week, we were introduced to the fact that God called executioners into the city of Jerusalem, but he also called a certain man who was clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And that one who had the writing case was assigned to go throughout Jerusalem and put a mark on all the people who were grieved over the way that Israel was worshiping foreign gods, how they had turned their back on the God of their fathers. And so they were all going to be marked. I don't think it's insignificant that Ezekiel then says at the end of the chapter that when the marking was done, he was standing there by himself. That, that might mean something. There obviously were not a whole lot of people being marked, but at least the ones who were marked weren't slain by the executioners going through the city. So let's start at chapter 9, verse 8, to build up speed to get to chapter 10. Then it came about as they were striking, and I alone was left, that I fell on my face and cried out, saying, Alas, Lord God, art thou destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out thy wrath on Jerusalem? He's going to ask that question again. Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great, and the land is filled with blood. And the city is full of perversion, for they say the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. But as for me, my eye will have no pity, nor shall I spare, but I shall bring their conduct upon their heads. 
Then behold, the man clothed in linen, at whose loin was a writing case, reported saying, I have done just as you have commanded me. So he's gone out and marked all the ones who were not to be slain by the executioners. Chapter 10, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, in the expanse there was, over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone, in appearance resembling a throne appeared above them. And he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. So now we're back to the cherubim. These are the ones that we met by the river Chebar at the very beginning of the book of Ezekiel. These are the ones with the wings with which they cover themselves and others they fly with and their wings all touch each other and they have four faces. He's going to describe them yet again as if one description wasn't enough. He's going to describe them a couple of times again so that you understand that these are the same cherubim that always seem to be guiding the throne of God that is set up like a chariot that has wheels within wheels and the wheels are full of eyes and this is the way that the God of Israel travels and presents himself. And so Ezekiel's even going to say, these were the same guys I saw at, at the River Chebar. Okay, he doesn't use the word guys, but he says, these were the same dudes that I saw back at... <laughs> these are the same angels that I saw. These are the same cherubim. So yet again, in the imagery of the vision, he sees the man clothed in linen who was given this instruction to enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and to fill his hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them all over the city. Now those coals are a sign of judgment. God's going to judge the city. And so they're going to cast coals down on the city. But somewhere in these cherubim and in these whirling wheels, somewhere in the midst of that, there's an altar. And somewhere in the midst of that, there's burning coals. And somewhere in the midst of that, there's the manifestation of the judgment of God. And so the man with the, who is dressed in linen is told to go take those coals, fill his hands, and cast it over the city. So he entered in my sight. Verse 3 says, Now the cherubim were standing on the right side of the temple when the man entered. And the cloud filled the inner court. And then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. And the temple was filled with the cloud. And the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of God. So now we know where the glory of God is. He's in the temple. He's come to the very threshold of the temple. And then he's entered the inner court. And the glory of God is shining. So you have to kind of track it. You have, to, you have to recognize where he is initially. He's in the temple. He's in the court. He's shining through the court and the inner parts of the temple. And then we're going to watch him through this chapter depart out of the temple and then out of the city of Jerusalem. Now picture verse 5 for just a moment because I have a tough time with this one. Moreover, the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court. That's how loud the wings of the cherubim are. 
that you could hear them all the way out to the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. So he said, when God speaks, there's this thunderous voice, but also the wings of the cherubim are like that. And I can't help but think of whether it's Ernest Angley or whether it's Oprah. There have been people through the years, I know, there have been people through the years talk about angels like they're their their best buddy. There was a the reason I brought up Oprah was that she had someone on who had actually written a book about how to get angels to do your bidding for you. Because angels were servant to men and whatever you wanted angels to do, you just tell them and they'll do it. Not these guys. These guys are completely assigned to leading the glory of God and the Spirit of God riding on his eternal all-seeing chariot type throne. You don't command these guys. These guys are destroying cities. These guys are representing the all-knowing spirit of God, the all-seeing spirit of God. And the reason that I brought up Ernest Angley was because he used to do this shtick where he would say, Oh, look, there's an angel. And then the cameras would all turn toward the back corner. And by the way, that was a really good Ernest Angley impression if you've never heard him. And then the cameras would turn toward the back of the room, and he'd go, oh, too late, he's gone. (laughs) If you saw this, if you saw a real angel, I mean, these kind of angels, there would have been this thunderous sound, like the sound of the glory and the voice and the majesty of God. And and Ernest would not be going, oh, look, he'd be on his face. Mm -hmm. And everybody in the room would be on their face in front of an angel of God. But anyway, I like the way Ezekiel represents the cherubim of God. Yes, sir. So you don't think he saw an angel? Oh, I'm going to guess not. <laughs> Just checking. Just checking. What, my cynicism didn't give me away? Verse 6. And it came about when he commanded the man clothed in linen saying, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim. He entered, and he stood beside a wheel. And then the cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim, and took some and put it in the hands of the one clothed in linen, who took it and went out. And the cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. Then I looked, and behold, four wheels beside the cherubim, one wheel beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like the gleam of a Tarshish stone. And as for their appearance, all four of them had the same likeness, as if one wheel were within another wheel, Now, I've read a couple of commentators who say, rather than it being, how do I describe this? Rather than it being a flat plane of several different wheels inside wheels, that what's being described here is a wheel at one plane and then another wheel at a cross plane. So they're at right angles to each other. And they were kind of drawing from the fact that Ezekiel keeps saying that they never turn. They just move whatever direction they're going to move. 
And so kind of like the four corners of the earth or the four winds, that they're all four directions of the wheels so that the wheels of the throne of God can move anywhere without turning. Like a gyroscope, very much. Now, I don't know if any of that's true. I just thought I'd share it with you because I've always had the image of wheels inside wheels on a, on a single plane. And when I read that, I went, oh, yeah, that could be. Yeah, yeah. I guess we'll have to wait till we get there to find out. And then we'll go, oh, he was right. But I looked and behold, four wheels beside the cherubim, this is verse 9, one wheel beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like the gleam of a Tarshish stone. And as for their appearance, all four of them had the same likeness, as if one wheel were within another wheel. When they moved, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went but they followed in the direction which they faced without turning as they went. And their whole body, their backs, their hands, their wings, and their wheels were full of eyes all around, the wheels belonging to all four of them. Now, I can't even begin to picture that. The hands, the wings, the wheels full of eyes all around. I mean, it's not too hard to imagine that what that means is that God is all-seeing and that the cherubim are all-seeing and that they're able to be everywhere and go anywhere, but that they always have this steadfast direction to them where they don't turn, they don't change, they don't alter their course, which implies that God always knows right where he's going. He's never gotten somewhere and went, where are we? Verse 12, their whole body, their backs, their hands, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around, the wheels belonging to all four of them. And the wheels were called, in my hearing, the whirling wheels, which means that somebody, between God, between the angels, someone referred to them as the whirling wheels. So Ezekiel wrote it down and said, and I heard them called the whirling wheels. Verse 14, and each one of them had four faces. The first face was like the face of a cherub. The second face was like the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. Then the cherubim rose up. They are the living beings that I saw by the river Chebar. Now, when the cherubim moved, the wheels would go beside them. Also, when the cherubim lifted up their wings to rise off the ground, the wheels would not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels would stand still. And when they rose up, the wheels would rise up with them. For the spirit of the living beings was in them. I can't figure this out. The spirit of the living beings, the spirit of the cherubim was in the wheels so that wherever the cherubim went, the wheels went. When the cherubim rose, the wheels rose. It was all, it's all one creature with four faces and, and they're made, they're incorporated into wheels that carry the chariot of God and the spirit of God hovers on his throne above the cherubim who always have one direction. 
That's magnificent. But I can't quite figure it out because it's way beyond human comprehension. <laughs> I can't quite figure it out. It's, it's way beyond human imagination and comprehension. Has a greater imagination than I do. Yeah, well, when do you start thinking about four beings whose wings are connected, they always touch, that's four beings that's essentially one being that also has four faces each, that has wheels, that, ha that is full of eyes. It's, it's quite something. God does have a greater imagination than we do. So then, back to verse 18, then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood above the cherubim. So that's why he went through all the trouble of describing the cherubim and the wheels is that the glory of God that had been in the temple now came back out of the temple, past the threshold of the temple, and rested above the cherubim. Verse 19, And when the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them, and they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. So now we know where the glory of God is. The glory of God is with the cherubim who are rising up off the earth and leaving the temple. Verse 20, as if he has to say it again, he says, these are the living beings that I saw beneath the God of Israel by the river Chebar. So I knew that they were cherubim. Each one had four faces and each one four wings and beneath their wings was the form of human hands. As for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the river Chebar. Each one went straight ahead. Chapter 11. Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faced eastward, and behold, there were 25 men at the entrance of the gate. And among them, I saw Jaazaniah, son of Azur, and Pelatiah, son of Baniah, leaders of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give evil advice in this city, who say, well, now the NASB is going to render it. Is not the time near to build houses? This city is the pot and we are the flesh. Now we have to talk about verse 3 for a while. We're going to be hanging out in verse 3 for just a bit. That adage, which actually is used several different times, different places in old Hebraism, when it says, isn't this city the pot and we're the flesh? They mean it in a positive way here because God's going to turn it on them in a minute and say this city is going to become the pot for all the, the dead and all the blood. But they are saying Jerusalem, big walls, it's, it's, like an, it's like a cauldron. It protects us. It's the big pot and we are the flesh. We're the meat inside the cauldron. And as long as we stay inside the city walls, we're safe. We're fine. And so the city is like a pot, and we are like the flesh. But 
several times. God uses that imagery, and later in the book of Ezekiel, he's going to pick that imagery up again, and he's going to say, now the pot is rusted, and now the walls are breaking down, and now the bloodshed's coming in the city. So he's going to continue using the same imagery that they initially used when they said the city's like a cauldron, and we're safe inside it. We're the flesh inside it, the same way that flesh is safe inside an iron skillet until you turn the heat on, and then not so safe, but up until then. The implication is the best of the meat is put in the cauldron. Right. This is, this is and the so meat. they said, this is the cauldron. We're the good meat. We're safe. But they say, is it not the time or is not the time near to build houses? There are a couple of different renderings of that phrase. Essentially what they're doing is that they are directly countering the prophecy of Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah has told the people, you're going into Babylon and you're going to be here for a long time. You're going to be here for 70 years. Let's go look at Jeremiah's prophecy. Turn to Jeremiah 29. And while we're doing that, look up Jeremiah 113, if you would, real quickly. There, Tom, and the rest of us are going to go to chapter 29. Go ahead and read that for us. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. And then what does the next verse say? Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. So God uses this imagery a few times in order to say, Here's a boiling pot coming down from the north. These are your enemies in this case, but it's a boiling pot, it's a boiling cauldron, it's coming from the north, it's coming your way. So God uses this idea because it's just so familiar. Everybody who cooks food Everybody who has a cauldron and knows to put flesh in it understands when God utilizes that real familiar imagery. Everybody in Jeremiah 29, let's start at verse 1. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah, and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. This letter was sent by hand of Elisal, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying... Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. 
and seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. So here's Jeremiah saying, you're going to be there 70 years. That's the prophecy. And since you're going to be there for a long time, build houses, take husbands and wives, plan to have children, because you're going to be there a long time. This is what the, uh, this is who Ezekiel is sent to, are the people who are saying, Jeremiah doesn't mean that. Jeremiah is telling us to go and to build our houses and to build our lives and to do business in Babylon. But isn't it time to build Jerusalem? We should stay here and build houses for ourselves. That is directly contrary to what God has already said through Jeremiah. And so God is going to punish those false prophets for saying that. But I want to read a little bit more of Jeremiah 29, just because, again, you're going to see the consistency of the prophetic visions through Jeremiah to Ezekiel, and you're going to hear God's faithfulness yet again. For thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 8, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream. That's exactly what's going to happen. That's what Ezekiel is crying out about. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name, and I have not sent them, declares the Lord. They're the ones who are saying, the city walls are good. We're like the good flesh inside the cauldron. We're safe in here. Isn't it time to build houses? Isn't it time to build in Jerusalem? Because Jeremiah has already said, you can get taken out of Jerusalem, go to Babylon, even go so far as to pray for the welfare of Babylon, because if it goes well with Babylon, it's going to go well for you. And the false prophets and diviners and dreamers of dreams are going to say, no, 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 that's not what Jeremiah, that's not what God wants. No, God's never going to do that to us. We're going to stay here and plant Jerusalem. This is the place where God has chosen to place his name. So we're, we're fine here. We're safe here. And then God's going to punish them severely. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Okay, so how many of you Word of Faith folks have heard that verse yanked completely out of its context and misused over and over again because preachers just love to get a hold of that verse and say, God knows the plans that he has for you. And he plans for you your welfare and not your calamity. And he's got a future for you and a hope. And you got to look at the context. That is said by Jeremiah very specifically to Israel, who God has actually taken into the Babylonian captivity. Uh, when people do use that verse, I often say, well, then if that verse applies to you, where exactly are your 70 years in Babylon? When did that happen? Because that's just the previous verse, but people love to divide up the word of God. This, again, is why at the beginning of tonight I said, context! That's why I said that, and we'll continue to say it. You've got to pay attention to the big picture, the big prophecies, in order to understand what's really being said. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, 
declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. What's that place? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. I'm going to bring you back to Israel. I'm going to give you back your land. I know I drove you out of it, but I'm going to bring you back to it. Verse 15 Because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. For thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your brothers, who did not go with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending upon you the sword and the famine and pestilence, And I will make them like split open figs that cannot be eaten due to their rottenness. And I will pursue them with a sword and with famine and with pestilence. And I will make them a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse and a horror and a hissing and a reproach among all nations where I have driven them. Because they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord, which I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets. But you did not listen, declares the Lord. You, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I have sent away from Jerusalem into Babylon. So hear the word. What is that word? Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat the produce, take wives, raise up children, pray for the welfare of the city. That's what God has told them to do. And there are people staying behind saying, that's not what God means. We're going to stick it out here in Jerusalem. God says, I'm going to send them famine and pestilence and a sword and because they didn't listen to me. I told them what to do. Go back to Ezekiel. We're back in Ezekiel 11 now. Ezekiel 11:3, they are saying that exact thing. Starting at verse 2, he said to me, son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give evil advice in this city, who say, is it not time to build houses? This city is a pot and we are the flesh. They're saying we're fine, we're safe, we're protected, we're behind the walls, and we should build our houses here in Jerusalem which God has said through Jeremiah, no, build in Babylon, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. Now do you kind of understand verse 3? It took a little bit of background to get it. Verse 4, therefore, since they say that, therefore prophesy against them, son of man, prophesy. Then the spirit of the Lord fell upon me and he said to me, say, Thus says the Lord, so you think, house of Israel, for I know your thoughts. Okay, God in his sovereignty, knowing what men think, but I kind of like God's semi-sarcastic attitude here. Have you ever said, yeah, you think? That's what God's saying to them. You think you're going to be okay behind the city walls. You think you're going to build. You think you're going to stay here and have sons and daughters. You think... You're going to have success in this city. Yeah, you think. 
I know your thoughts, says God. You have multiplied your slain in this city, filling its streets with them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain, whom you have laid in the midst of the city, they are the flesh, and this city is the pot, but I shall bring you out of it. So, okay, the famine, the pestilence, the sword is all going to drive them out of the city of Jerusalem. And God, in God-type sovereign irony, says, you think you're the good meat. You think you're the good meat inside the cauldron and you're safe. But you've been killing in the city. You have let the blood lay on the rocks. You haven't buried it with the dust. You haven't kept my city clean or pure. My city has become cursed because of you and the people that you have slain in the city. Therefore, the slain in the city, they're the ones who are actually going to be the flesh inside the pot. And it's corrupt. It's dead flesh. That's what's going to stay inside the pot. You, I'm going to drive you out. I'm going to slay you. You have feared the sword, says verse 8. You have feared the sword, so I will bring a sword upon you. The Lord declares, God who knows your thoughts, God who says, yeah, you think, I know how you think. God says, I know what you're afraid of. You're afraid if you leave the city that you're going to be killed. So since that's what you're afraid of, instead of being reverent, instead of being fearful, instead of recognizing me, instead of worshiping me and doing what I say to do, instead of reverencing me, you are living out of fear and you're acting out of fear. So the very thing you fear That's what I'm bringing on you because you didn't listen to me. You have feared a sword, so I will bring a sword upon you, the Lord God declares. And I shall bring you out of the midst of the city, and I shall deliver you into the hands of strangers, and they will execute judgments against you. You will fall by the sword. I shall judge you to the border of Israel, so you shall know that I am the Lord. I mentioned this last week, but God does this repeatedly. We like to think of a, of a big, loving, marshmallow grandfather in the sky when we think of God. We like to think of God as, as revealing himself through all the good things that he brings to us, all the ways that he loves us and pats us on the head and gives us noogies and says, oh, you little scamp. We like to think of that kind of nice, kind, generous God and that that's how we're going to know God. God says here, I'm going to kill you all. I'm going to destroy your city. I'm heaping coals on it. I'm going to break down the walls of the city, and I've left the temple, and I've left the city. That's how you're going to know I'm God. When the judgment falls on you, you're going to realize that God himself has protected you from the judgment all these years. And when I back away, when I'm gone, when I don't care anymore, judgment's going to fall on you, pestilence and famine. And the sword is all going to fall on you because I'm going to step away. And I'm going to be responsible for the fact that you're being judged. And then you're going to know that I am the Lord. God is perfectly willing to demonstrate his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, any way that he sees fit. So just be thankful that he decided to demonstrate it to you by grace. He decided to demonstrate it to you by his goodness. By killing his son in your place. Be thankful for that. Because he's perfectly willing to slay. In order to prove he's God. 
you will fall by the sword. I shall judge you to the border of Israel, so you shall know that I am the Lord. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be flesh in the midst of the pot, but I shall judge you to the border of Israel. In other words, between the famine and the pestilence and the sword, you're going to be driven out of Israel. And thus you will know that I am the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. You will know that I am Yahweh, that self-revelatory name. I'm revealing myself in the things that I'm doing and the ways that I'm judging you. And you will know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor have you executed my ordinances, but you have acted according to the ordinances of the nations around you. Now it came about, Ezekiel speaking, that as I prophesied that Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, died. Yeah, he couldn't take it anymore. He's like, God's out to get me? He just dropped dead. Then I fell on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Alas, Lord God, wilt thou bring the remnant of Israel to a complete end? Because Ezekiel's concept of the remnant at that point was, well, you've already taken the high and mighty, and then you've taken all the craftsmen, you've taken all the people into Babylon. So he was thinking that the people who were still behind staying in Jerusalem, he was thinking of them as the remnant of God. And now God's wiping out that remnant. It sounds very much like Elijah saying, there's no one left but me. And God saying to him, oh, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And God takes credit for it. I have kept to myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And he didn't introduce them to Elijah. Elijah didn't need to know who they were. God needed to know who they were, but God preserved a remnant to himself. Ezekiel thought he could identify the remnant. It has to be those that are still in Jerusalem. But God's wiping out the remnant in Jerusalem. So then God wants to answer Ezekiel. Wipe out the remnant? Wipe out the remnant? Do you really think that's what I'm going to do is wipe out the remnant? Wilt thou bring the remnant of Israel to a complete end? And God says to him, verse 14, suddenly, just turning on a dime, God suddenly prophesies, oh yeah, it's going to end well. It's going to be bad now. But I'm faithful to Israel. So the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles, and the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. This land has been given us as a possession. In other words, He's saying the reason that I'm going to do what I'm doing to Jerusalem is that these people, your, your own kindred, have said, don't do what God says. Don't say what God has said through the prophets. Instead, do what you want to do. Stay in Jerusalem. Build your houses. Raise your families there. And then the rest of you, yeah, go to Babylon. Yeah, go far from the Lord. They thought they were the safe ones. Verse 16, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, Though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. Unlike this concept 
that the remnant were the ones who stayed behind in Jerusalem. God says, no, they're the ones I scattered, but I'm protecting them. I'm keeping them. I know where they are. I'm going to be a sanctuary to them. It's not the sanctuary in Jerusalem. It's not the temple in Jerusalem. I've departed out of there, but I'm going to be a sanctuary for them in the very place where I scattered them because I know who they are and I know where they are. This is a God of great specificity. Thus says the Lord God, I shall gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered. And I shall give you the land of Israel. So again, Ezekiel's concept was the remnants trying to stay in Jerusalem. God has to correct him and say, no, no, no. Those are the people who are dreaming dreams and claiming they speak for God and having visions, but they're false prophets. They're telling the people, build your houses, stay here in Jerusalem. You're going to be safe. These walls are going to protect you. God says, that's not the way I work. Those are the people I'm going to destroy because they didn't listen to me. But the people who listen to me are the very people who are going to be marked by the man dressed in linen. Those are the people who are going to be preserved. Those are the ones that I'm going to bring back and give this land of Israel, which originally people thought, well, God would never drive us out of the land. Let's stay here. God did drive them out of the land, did bring them through that time of trouble, but was a sanctuary to them even in the place where they were scattered. Because God doesn't think like us. And he doesn't, thank God, and he doesn't act like us. Therefore, verse 17, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I shall gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered. And I shall give you the land of Israel. When they come there, They will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. And I shall give them one heart and I shall put a new spirit within them. So what is the solution to Israel's rebellion? The solution to Israel's sinfulness and rebellion and not doing what God says is not Israel shaping up and doing better. That's not the solution. The solution is God has to give them a new heart. God has to put a new spirit in them. God has to change them internally, and then they're going to be able to follow God and do what God says. Does any of that sound familiar? It certainly ought to sound like the born-again thing. This is what we see all the way through the Bible. Unless God does something for you, you're not going to change. You're not going to be changed. Isn't that the whole point of Peter saying? Dogs go back to their vomit. Pigs go back to their wallow. They might act like sheep for a while, but they're going to go back because they are dogs and they are pigs. The only way that people are going to be changed is if God changes them. God has to change their heart, change the things that they desire, the things that they love, change the way that they worship, and then give them a new spirit so that they can understand the things of God. And these same people who have been in exile who have gone through the captivity, who have been out of their land for all those years, are going to come back and realize in their new heart and in their new spirit that it was God all along who did all of that and preserved them through it. The same way that we, when we go through our trials, our struggles, we get to the other side of it and we can say, it's God that preserved me all the way through it. 
You know, when you're in it, when you're in the middle of it, no fun. When you're in the midst of it, it's like, shake your fist at God and say, I thought you loved me. Why would you put me through this? But there's not a person in this room tonight who can't look back at some struggle in their life and, and not be able to explain how they got through it. How did I get through that? How did I endure that? How did I put up with that? Well, the answer is not in you. If you're gazing at your belly button trying to figure out what part of you got you through that, you're never going to find it. Because what got you through that was God and his grace and his mercy. And that's what's going to happen to Israel nationally. The same way that he gave you a new heart and gave you a new spirit so that you recognize that it's God that's taking you through these trials in life and that he is faithful to you because he doesn't change. No variableness, neither the shadow of turning. The same way that you learn that through your experience with God, Israel nationally is going to learn that through their experience with God. So God would say, I shall give them one heart and I shall put a new spirit within them, and I shall take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people, and I shall be their God. (coughs) We have to say one more time. Throughout the Bible, anywhere you see human beings say, I will, I will, There's instructions like, no, you say, I will if the Lord pleases. You say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do thus and so and go into this city and start a job and make me. It's up to God, whatever God thinks, whatever God determines. But notice how frequently throughout the Bible, God says, I will, I will. And that's the word of an unchanging, unerring God. That's been his intention from the beginning, and he has all the power and all the authority and all the might to make sure that his is the only will that actually happens. We can will to do things. We can determine to do things. We can decide to do things, and if God wills something else, you're doing something else. Mm -hmm. Because in the end, God's will is going to utterly supersede your will. Okay, now you just agreed with that on a theological basis. What are you going to say about the fact that God says, speaking of Israel, they will be my people and I will be their God? Well, that's the only will that matters. That's the only will that counts. So is that going to happen? Yes, sir. It has to happen. I don't understand. I don't comprehend. I don't get it. The folks who say God gave up on Israel. God's not going to restore Israel. He's not going to bring them back to the land. He's not going to do any of that because they broke his law and they broke his commandments and they worshiped other gods and God divorced them and so God's done with them. All of that's true, but it's not the end of the story. The end of the story is every single one of Israel's prophets say, God's going to bring you back. God's going to restore you. God's going to be faithful because he's made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because he's made a covenant with David that is an unconditional promise. Someday his greater son is going to sit on the throne ruling over collective Israel, all 12 tribes. That's why Paul picks it up in the book of Romans in Romans 11 and says, all Israel will be saved. After the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel is going to be saved. God is not done with Israel. Is that plain enough? It just keeps coming up. I know you're tired of hearing me say it. And I keep saying it and saying it because God's word keeps saying it and saying it. 
says it over and over and over. I will be their God. They will be my people. They're going to walk in my statutes. They're going to keep my ordinances and they're going to do them. When? When I take out their heart of stone, when I put a new spirit within them, when I do that for them, they're going to return to me. They're going to follow me. I will be their God. They will be my people. But, verse 21, but as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and abominations, I shall bring their conduct down on their heads, declares the Lord. So in other words, God's saying, I'm right, I'm just, I'm doing what satisfies my holy justice. Those that have chased after the foreign gods, those are not the ones that I'm counting as the remnant. The remnant I have scattered, but I know where they are. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to give them the land, new spirit, put a new heart in them. They're going to be my people. I'm going to be their God. But I'm also going to dole out punishment here because Israel is actually guilty. So they went after their detestable things and their abominations, and I'm going to bring their conduct down on their head, says the Lord. And then starting at verse 22, the cherubim, we're back to the cherubim, lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is at the east of the city. The glory of God has departed the temple, then departed the city, and is now east of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to the exiles in Chaldea, that's in Babylon. So the vision that I had seen left me. And then I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. We will pick up in chapter 12 next time we're together. So if you come away with nothing else tonight, come away with the fact that God is faithful. Once God has spoken his word, he doesn't change it. He doesn't alter it. He doesn't turn from it. God is faithful to Israel, which means he's going to be faithful to you. You don't want a God who is faithless. And if God can make these kind of promises to Israel and then say, never mind, I didn't mean it. I meant those people. I was talking about pygmies in Borneo. I wasn't talking about Israel. If he can make these kinds of promises and declarations to a very specific people group and then turn his back, then you have no confidence that he's a God who can keep you. But he's a God who can keep you despite all your sins, despite your corruption, despite your wanderings, despite the fact that you like yourself way too much. God knows all that and knew it when he chose you the same way that he knew what Israel was going to do when he chose Israel. Since all his ways are known from the beginning, when he chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he knew all of that was going to happen. And he chose them anyway because the end result of it is him demonstrating that he is God and he gets all the glory. He gets all the honor that way by saving wretched people exactly like Steve. Let me read this little so, Really? Exactly like Steve? You're going to let me roll with that? Okay, fine. Good. So. For as the, this is God. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me. 
That's God's intention. That has to happen. It's got to happen. And it was right there in the Old Testament, but they didn't believe it. But the very fact that God would say that, and you're correct in saying, but they didn't believe it, doesn't that just prove that man left to himself by his very nature doesn't care about the things of God, isn't going to listen to the things of God. It takes God, as we saw tonight, actively doing something to change us inside so that we can hear the word of God, comprehend it, take it into our hearts, and, and live by it. Because we don't know the full depths of evil. We're not aware of it. We're like children. We're not aware how evil is evil. Because we're not aware of how holy is holy. Yeah. And so much of religion on planet Earth makes the error of saying, yes, evil is pervasive. Evil is everywhere, and we have no idea how evil evil is or how sinful we really are. But then their answer to it is, so get busy. Fix yourself. Do stuff. Do something that will make you better so that God will accept you. That's the basis of so much religion in the world. And as we see time and time again in the Bible, the solution to the evil of evil and the sin of sin, the solution isn't us. The solution's God. And only by his goodness and his grace do any of us have any hope. But how gracious of God to say to Israel, yeah, you're really bad and you're really wrong and I'm going to drive you away from your land and slay you and pestilence and famine. I'm going to do all that, but I'm going to bring you back. That's just grace. As Barney said Sunday, that's the grace clause. Yeah. Yes, Micah. It is an amazing picture of God's sovereignty in regeneration in verses 19 through 21. You have one group that has given uh, a new heart. Uh, heart of stone is taken out. Heart of flesh is given so that they'll follow in his statutes. And then you have another group in verse 21 um, who, who follow their heart after detestable things. And, and he holds them responsible. The judgment comes down on them. Yeah. Why didn't he give them a new heart? Or why didn't he Both judge everybody? Right. Yeah. His sovereignty. That would be election, wouldn't it? Yeah. That's yeah. Like Acts 7 and Acts 2. Yeah. It runs all the way through the Bible. God is very consistent. He's going to be gracious to whom he's gracious. I'll be merciful to whom I'm merciful. And who he wills, he hardens. And you even see that in the Thessalonian letter. He's going to send a strong delusion so that they believe a lie and be damned. I mean, that's absolute sovereignty. There's no way to read your Bible for what it actually says and come away with anything other than God's completely in charge. Completely. Is that what you were driving at? I sort of talked right over you, no, Alex. No, no, yeah. Um, I, I keep thinking, like what you were saying before, I don't know how people don't see this, that God's plan is that very few do. Yeah. And that's a little puzzling and frustrating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's certainly Paul's argument in Romans, that he has put everybody under sin, so that then he can be gracious to who he's going to be gracious to. But the beginning of the book of Romans just levels the playing field. Everybody's guilty. Jews are guilty. Gentiles are guilty. Everybody's guilty. So that God can then be merciful. So he can demonstrate mercy. And that's the divine plan of God. And that's why I do get so frustrated with the preachers who think the solution is you. Get busy. Do something. Do more work. That, that drives me crazy because it's tantamount to the people who are saying, 
Jerusalem's apart and we're the flesh and we're safe and so build houses and what Jeremiah said doesn't matter. But, you know, we have a long, rich history of people doing that and God not being happy about it. And yet it's being preached from pulpits everywhere. The solution's always God. All right, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.